Well, we've read the text already from Mark chapter 10. It's always nice when uh, you're teaching through a book and passage lands right where you need it to, right? And that happened here. So as I was thinking this week what to do, I was reading back through the passage. Hey, I don't have to skip anywhere. It's right there. What we need today for such a glorious day. And so what I want to do is take this text and speak about some ironies of the kingdom. Some ironies of the kingdom. Now, I've probably used this word before, not to treat you as less than intelligent, but that word irony, there's several meanings for it, but one is simply an outcome of events contrary to what was or what might have been expected. And I think this definition of irony really describes the entirety of Mark chapter 10 up to this point where we even have read today. If you remember, it began with the Pharisees, chapter 10, verse 1, trying to trick Jesus or coax him into some kind of argument about marriage and divorce, hopefully either getting him to espouse something contrary to the Scriptures or hopefully maybe even getting him to be more stern and more uh, strict than even um, the law and the scriptures and hope that Jesus may end up like John the Baptist, if you remember. He was pretty harsh about marriage and divorce and remarriage with Herod, and it got his head cut off. But Jesus, being who he is, simply went back to Moses and his teaching. And he said, pretty much, you know what's written, and you know why Moses permitted what he did, and even went back to the garden. You know what's written. That man shall not be alone, and uh, he shall cleave to his wife, and uh, the two will be one. And so their efforts to mix him up um, turned out to be different than what they were hoping for, the Pharisees, that is. Then the disciples were stopping the children from coming to Christ for whatever reason they were doing this. And so Jesus rebuked them and said to them, Don't forbid the children to come to me. For such is the kingdom of God. In fact, he says, unless one receives the kingdom of God like a child, he shall not enter. Now, that was very ironic to what the disciples had been thinking up to this point. Even with Jesus being their teacher and being with them every day, they certainly were not expecting Jesus to say, look at these little children. This is how one comes into the kingdom. Just willingly, in faith, trusting because they know they can't do anything. There's no way they can even think in terms of what can I do to earn God's favor. Well, that's the way everybody comes into the kingdom. It's totally different than what the disciples were thinking. And then he really blows them away, and the irony really smacks them in the face when this young rich ruler walks away from Jesus disheartened by Jesus' teachings because he wanted to know what can I do to get into the kingdom. And Jesus told him, if you want to do something, then just keep the whole law perfectly. And he recognized in Jesus' words that he had not done that, even though he came to Jesus thinking that he had. And he walks away. And then Jesus says how hard it is to enter the kingdom. How difficult it is. And even says things like, it's impossible almost for one to be wealthy and enter the kingdom. And this caused the disciples to ask the question, right? Well, then it's impossible. If this man can't get into heaven, 
It's impossible. And so Jesus, agreeing with them, says, yeah, but what's impossible with man is possible with God. All things are possible with God. And the irony of this just had to smack them in the face. They thought we can do well, do good, be like the Pharisees, be like this rich man, be like whoever they had in their mind. And Christ says, no, the way to enter the kingdom is totally opposite of what you're thinking. You can't do anything to enter the kingdom. God does what's necessary. Christ will do what is necessary for them. And there's glimpses of them getting this. And then there's glimpses of them not getting it, right? They've just not long ago declared, they recognize this is the Son of God. Even the winds and seas obey this man. And they've discovered this, but yet we get to our text and Jesus has just told them all these things that they couldn't quite grasp. And then he says another irony in my kingdom, the first will be last and the last first. Now, it doesn't get much more ironic than that when you come to talk about the world and flesh because what do we think? I mean, number one is number one, right? The way to the top is never the bottom. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. And that kind of just sweeps right above their head, obviously. Because we come to our text and we find this This, these disciples are amazed and some of the people still following that weren't disciples were even afraid because his teachings were powerful yet they were very puzzling and not only for the disciples but for all people listening this had to be very difficult it was hopeful for a lot of people because they're hearing this great teacher that they knew were from god say opposite of what the pharisees have been saying just think about that there was some hope for those that were so afraid and following him because they're hearing this man of God say, oh, it's not about wealth. It's not about what you have. It's not even about what you do. In fact, some of you who are least among the people here will be considered great in the kingdom. Before his disciples, they couldn't understand this quite yet because Jesus was contradicting all that they had been taught. And all their preconceived notions and all their religious aspirations Jesus was just whacking them out from under them. And this was bothersome to them. And then for the third time in the last three chapters, counting chapter 10, Jesus in Mark speaks of an outcome still very contrary to the outcome expected by his closest followers, right? And he tells them this, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem. And by this point, this is probably why they are amazed. They've been hearing him say this, and yet he is sternly, steadfastly headed to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, he says, will be delivered in Jerusalem over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And we see the irony in this, but of course they really couldn't. In fact, Luke in his account of that tells us, but they, the disciples, understood none of these things because this saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what he said. In fact, if you back up a chapter, the last time Jesus said this very same thing, Mark even says they did not understand this, but they were afraid to ask him. 
We've all been there before, right? We kind of know the answer, but we don't really want to know it, so we're not going to ask. So they kind of were grasping some of what Jesus was saying, but they were so afraid of what was hidden from them, they didn't even want to know. So we would have expected the disciples at this point again, as Jesus says, hey, I'm about to go to Jerusalem, and there people are going to arrest me, take me, flog me, beat me, spit on me, and actually kill me. We would expect them to react the same way as Peter did back in chapter 8, where Peter pulled the Lord aside and was going to help him and rebuked him, remember? Oh, Lord, you're not going to go get killed. I won't allow that to happen. And you might recall that Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, because your thoughts are not of the kingdom. But the reaction we get from them, again, if we're reading through this for the first time, seems ironic again. Because here comes James and John with this crazy request. I mean, of all that they've just seen happen, and they've heard, and Jesus keeps saying these things, the last will be first, the first last. And I think it's Luke that records actually their mother comes to Jesus with them and with this request. Hey, when you come into your kingdom, we want to sit on the right hand and the left. And I love what I love what the how Mark records this. They came to him here with the with the first beginning stages of the word faith movement. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we want you to do. That's what they said. Hey, we're we're gonna control you. We're here to ask you to do what we want. And I love that Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And then they said this, grant us to sit on the right hand left in your glory and Jesus said well do you you don't even know what you're asking and it's interesting he talks about this cup of course all through the Old Testament the cup is um, uh, symbolic of death and Jesus was talking about this I'm about to drink this cup to the dregs this cup of bitterness this cup of suffering and defeat and beating and lashing the stripes that will bring your healing I'm about to take those on and I'm going to be baptized with this. In other words, I'm not going to miss any of it. I'm going to be completely immersed in it. And they said, oh, we can do that. And, and then Jesus agreed. In fact, you will. And we know that James and John both were martyred. They did drink that cup. They were baptized with it. But then Jesus said, but this request you're making, it's not mine to give. This is for whom it has been prepared. And then the ten heard it. And they became indignant. Now, a lot of people have pointed out, I don't think they were indignant because how dare you ask the Lord that? You just heard what he said. They were probably indignant because they got there first, right? Oh, man, we were already going to do that. We wanted to be first. And they beat us to it. James and John's mom, they, she's always, you know, doing stuff that we don't agree with. That's probably why they were indignant. And then in verse 42, Jesus lays out the differences again these ironies of his kingdom as opposed to the kingdom that was in the minds of the disciples and is still in the minds of many people today. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. This is what you guys are thinking. My kingdom is going to be a place where you get to be in charge and finally all these people that have been over you, you're going to be over them and you're going to lord it over them and exercise 
authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be slave of all. Again, so contrary. So contrary to what men were thinking. And sometimes so contrary to what we see in the church today, right? We see people vying for position. Wanting their names to be out there. It's all over social media. Nobody can do anything for the kingdom's sake without posting it. If there's a preacher anywhere that preaches the gospel and God saves somebody, it's going to be on Facebook. And every time they've given a glass of water or a, a food or given some money, it's all over the place. And we're still thinking, along with the disciples, hey, I want to be on the right hand and the left hand because I feel like I'm a little bit, what I'm doing is more important. In so many ways, we still battle with this. But he says, but the greatest of all is servant of all. I think that's why he said what he said at one time about John the Baptist. There's never been one born of, among women. I mean, of women among men. Greater in the kingdom than John the Baptist. He's the greatest in the kingdom. Just simply pointing this fact out, people didn't think much of him when he was here. They didn't even want to hear him preach. He looked bad. He didn't sound good. He called people snakes and vipers. And then he got his head chopped off. Well, that, what good is that? If he was a good preacher and good at what he was doing, everybody would have loved him. He would have had crowds following him. But Jesus said, no, there's none greater than that. Why? Because of this, because of this idea that the least in the kingdom is the greatest and the greatest is the least. Because he points this out. And this is a very humbling sentence. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Isn't that amazing? That we're in the church fighting for a position, wanting our names to be known, and Jesus said, I didn't even come to make myself famous. I came to serve. I didn't come for my people to be around me serving me. Now, I know that we do serve our Lord and we bow before him, but he's making this point. You've got the kingdom all wrong. I didn't come with an army of angels killing everybody that was my enemy. That will come later. I came to serve. And not only did I come to serve in a way you don't understand, but look at this. I'm going to Jerusalem to do all the things I'm going to do and all the things are going to happen to me because I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. So much of this could not be understood by those who followed Jesus at that time. And we know it's easy for us to look back and judge them and question their motives. But we see the whole picture because of the next verse 34 or the, the next sentence in verse 34. We know this. They couldn't understand this. But he says, after I will be flogged and killed, hey, after three days, I'll rise again. That made the difference. That made the difference. There was a supernatural removal of blindness and inability to comprehend that took place when Jesus got up out of the grave. It's still what makes a difference today because he's alive. 
We read in several places how that after the resurrection, the followers of Jesus remembered all that he had said and how he had said it. Even the women at the tomb, when they went early in the morning, it says in one account, and they remembered that he had said he would raise from the dead. We don't know. Did they go there expecting maybe he's going to be alive or did they go there to attend to the body? We don't know. But when they got there, they found out that tomb was rolled, uh, the stone was rolled away from the tomb. And somebody said, not so Jesus could come out, but so they could go in. Jesus was already gone. But the, the stone was rolled away so the people could see in. And now we have this glimpse. Hey, that tomb is empty. And they, they knew that that's where he was. They put him in there. They cared for his body. And so suddenly, after the resurrection, you know, it's one of the greatest, um, it's one of the greatest argumentations and apologetics for the fact that this is real was how the disciples responded after the resurrection. Because the resurrection changed them. It would have been much easier for them to make up a lie, as the guards did, and said, you know what, we believe in him, but he went away and did something else. Or, well, uh, we misunderstood him. We didn't, he's really a phony. But no, they stuck. I mean, this took a lot of guts to say he did just what he said he would do. We didn't understand it, but now we do. He died, and he was buried, but he rose again. And all these men that followed him, they gave their life for that. Somebody pointed out, who would give their life for a lie? This had to be true for these men. And then we read how he revealed, and they pointed this out, he revealed himself to these men, these men, and even some 500 people. So when this was recorded, there was people alive who could have looked and said, hey, wait a minute, I know them, or I know where, I'll go look and where those 500 people were. We'll see if this guy was really raised from the dead. But it made all the difference for them. And I can only imagine that James and John, before their death, probably talked about this maybe even with her mother oh gosh how bad did we get it we thought this kingdom was something else but he really did come to give himself and his whole life as a ransom for many this is the great hope that we all now have post-resurrection that just as god did so for his people then he will now cause his people to understand and believe and follow. This is why we preach the gospel, right? We trust that. We believe that. We know that God will supernaturally remove the scales on the eyes and open the ears so people can hear the truth of the gospel and be saved. And there is nothing left to be done. He has risen just as he said he would do. And so whatever happened then is happening now. And many are still coming to understand that Jesus really does exist. That he really did live sinlessly. And that he really did give his life a ransom for many. And that after giving his life, he really was buried. <clears throat> but he really did rise from the dead. And then ascended back to heaven. <clears throat> One day he will come again. <clears throat> And if that man, that God-man, came to serve and not be served, then all of us, through the same power 
of that resurrection can lay down our lives and our passions to be first, our passions to desire first, and our lust for power and prestige. We can lay all that down in the same power of the resurrection to serve, to be least of all, which is to be greatest of all. Man, that the church would be busy about seeing who can outserve, and not so we can put it on Facebook. But just because that's what God's called us to do. We love each other. We love him and we love each other. I mean, Jesus himself said, this is how the world will know you are my disciples. When you love one another. The story has so many ironies. But when we know the whole scriptures, because we have the blessed privilege of having the entire compilation of God's word, we know it's not an irony at all. I mean, we're reading that Psalm 22. Almost all, a lot of that's quoted in the New Testament. Jesus says some of those very words from the New Testament, from Psalm 22. All those words fulfilled in him. Hundreds of years before Christ was even born. And many people point to this text in Mark and say, well, this was added later. No way that a person could have got all those predictions so specifically right. That he would be flogged. That he would be spit on. That he would be mocked. And that he would die. Nobody could get all that that correct. Well, nobody except the one who was fulfilling all the prophecies. Nobody except the Son of God. He got them all right because he was who they were talking about. In fact, there is a place in the New Testament that says not only did they remember what Jesus said, but they remembered that all the prophecies about him were fulfilled. And they came true, and they did. That's what we celebrate today. Man, we've, we, we can all point, look through the disciples and see how they act and what they thought and things they said, and we've all been there. We've all thought it. We've even said it. We would, have, we would like for this to be a lot more about us than it is. But if there's anything that points away from us and to God, it's the resurrection. I mean, he was dead three days and he rose again. That's the glorious hope that we all have. It's why we celebrate. It separates us from every other religion in the world. Our God is still alive. I saw somebody today had written a list of all the people throughout history who had started religions. And all of them are dead, 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 dead. But Jesus is alive. That makes a difference. I hope you enjoyed this Easter Sunday and celebrate it as best you can. Um, because our Lord is alive. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for all of your goodness toward us, for life. And though we so don't understand what it means to have abundant life so often, I pray you would teach us that. Jesus came not only that we might have life, that we, but that we might have life more abundantly. And I know that points to eternity, but also says something about the life we have here. So help us to love greater love each other in greater ways and serve one another as we serve you together and Lord just continue to teach us what this means because we don't understand the kingdom still we we don't want to find ourselves like the disciples jockeying for position we just want to be the least so we can serve the best and um, we pray for your help to do that Lord, as we celebrate the supper, I ask that you would just give us grace upon grace 
continue to just um, assure our hearts that we belong to you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.